Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Politics and Polemics, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Megu. I also host my own podcasts, Independent Thought and Freedom, and also a story club, Global Politics and Global Cultures. You can find them on the sidebar of the New Books Network website. Today, my guest is Ian Baruma, author of the book, The Churchill Complex, The Curse of Being Special, From Winston and FDR to Trump and Brexit, published by Penguin, out now in hardcover, audiobook, and on Kindle. Welcome, Mr. Baruma. Thank you for having me. Yes, it's a, it's a real pleasure to have you. I mean, you are, you know, uh, an author and, and public intellectual of, of some note, you know, it's a decade-long presence. But, uh, you know, there, there may be some people in our audience who still may not know uh, about your background. So we like to usually start off with the authors, you know, telling our audience a, a little bit about your background and how you came to this book. Well, I was born in, in the Netherlands in, in 1951, so very much still in the shadow of World War II. Uh, my father was Dutch, my mother was uh, British. Um, and so the idea of Churchill and England and the heroism of the war and so on was very much part of my childhood. My, grand, my mother's parents, my grandparents, were the children of immigrants uh, Jewish, and so they very much felt that uh, Winston Churchill had saved their lives. Um, so I grew up with that notion. Um, I s- studied uh, Chinese, and uh, at a time when you couldn't really visit China, if, unless you were an official friend of the of the people. Um, what year is that? That was the very early 70s. Okay. I started watching Japanese films and got interested in Japanese theater. And I so cultural, to the cultural revolution was, was on. Was still on. Yeah. And so I went to Japan to study cinema and spent six years there. And then later spent seven years in Hong Kong. So Asia is very much part of my life. And after living in London for quite a long time, I moved to New York where I teach um, part of the time, one semester a year at Bard College, and the rest of the time I try to write. Um, And I've written on many different topics, many of them to do with China, Japan, Asia, but also uh, Europe, uh, and two novels, and so on and so forth. Right, right. So, well, if you get to just the title of your book, um, The Churchill Complex, well, what do you mean by that, and why is it important? What I mean is that Churchill um, was a great myth maker, and he created um, his own myth based on uh, real things, of course. But the myth was that uh, Churchill was a great war hero, especially in 1940, when Britain supposedly stood alone against Europe. Of course, it didn't stay, stand quite alone. It had a huge empire. Um, and Chamberlain in 1938 was the great villain, he was the coward, he appeased Hitler's Germany and so on. And the complex, as it's described in my book, is that um, every time there was a foreign crisis uh, which called for some kind of intervention or not uh, from the US or Britain, the two ghosts of Churchill and Chamberlain would, uh, would, would rear up. And too many presidents and also prime ministers as their junior partners 
felt that they needed to take Churchill as their model and were terrified of being Chamberlain, which led to a lot of foolish wars, the last of which perhaps had the most far-reaching consequences was the invasion of Iraq. So that's what I mean by the complex. So on the one hand, the United States seeing itself in Churchill's image, fighting for, uh, against dictators all over again and freedom and democracy and so on, at least rhetorically. And Britain sort of wanting to prolong its finest hour by staying too close to what they call the special relationship with the United States and not and missing the boat time and time again when it could have played a, a, a leading role in Europe. Right, yeah. Uh, and there's kind of a weird reversal there, isn't, isn't it? Where, where Churchill was the driving force to get America into the war. Um, was there a kind of reversal going forward in terms of the United States being the, the more aggressive one and, and, and dragging Britain in? Or, or would you say it... it yeah, Britain still had a sort of leading role. How, how would you see that? Well, Britain couldn't really have a leading role for very long after the war because um, without its empire, Britain was just a large European state and mm -hmm. had nothing like the power that it once had or that the United States continued to have. And so it could only play a role as, as the as the the partner of the U.S. And very often uh, the U.S. wanted Britain to take part in American military enterprises to give it more legitimacy. In the case of the Vietnam War, um, uh, Prime Minister, the Prime Minister then in Britain, Harold Wilson, couldn't really do that because he knew if he sent troops to Vietnam, he'd lose the left of his party. Mm -hmm. um, and but he had to support the United States um, at least in, 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 in rhetorically in order to keep the Americans happy. So it depended a little bit on the war. I mean, in some cases, the Americans Suez in 1956, when the British and the French and the Israelis um, attacked NASA's Egypt, it was the United States that had to rein in the British and um, in fact stop the war. So it depended on the circumstances. But yes, usually it was the United States that wanted Britain to take part. Right. And, and what would you, what's the main argument of, of the book? Um, because I, I, I know you, you, you criticize, um, uh, you know, some of the, I guess, the, the myths surrounding it. But if you could just walk, walk us through. Well, the main argument is not that the, everything about the uh, Anglo-American or mostly American order set up after World War II uh, was a disaster. If you grew up in Western Europe, uh, you very much benefited from it. Uh, it would look different, I think, if you were in South America, for example. But uh, from, if you were Japanese or, Euro or Western European, uh, it, it was a great benefit. But I think the, it, it, the moral of the, of, of, of the story in my book is that the, the, an hour of glory in history can contain the seeds of future problems. And I think the United States, in it, all through its history, veering from a tendency to isolate itself from the world on the one hand and be a sort of crusader uh, on a mission to spread democracy and freedom through the, through the world on the other, um, in a way got seduced into trying to repeat World War II over and over and over again whenever there was a dictatorship, and especially when the dictatorship was communist. 
Um, and in the case of Britain, I think Britain should have, in my, that's my opinion, mm-hmm. should have played a leading role in, in, in Europe and in shaping Europe's institutions rather than always staying aloof until it was often too late. Uh, and it sort of scrambled to join the other Europeans, but had, didn't have very much influence anymore, not the, the influence it should have had. And I think that also um, has a lot to do with this wanting to prolong the glory of 1940 when it was no longer really relevant. And I think in the run-up to Brexit and the Brexit campaign, you saw this very clearly because it was full of nostalgic rhetoric about Spitfires and Finest Hour and Dunkirk and all that when... Um, you know, we've moved on since then. Yeah, so that's that's very interesting. And I think there's a sort of a tension there in, in what was created by this complex that, that you've identified. So on the one hand, there's the Anglo-American order, which can be viewed from different perspectives, as you say. Um, but there's that liberal internationalist order of Bretton Woods and NATO, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and then I suppose... Well, I, I, I guess it's your point of view, whether you see it as a contradiction or not. But then there's that sort of what you might call the neocon, you know, um, the push to war, the constant push to war. Let's not be a Chamberlain. So like even today, if some, you know, people have a moderate view towards Russia or China, oh, you're an appeaser like Chamberlain. So, so you have this war machine, this constant, you know, which I suppose you can call the military industrial complex, if you want to use those terms. But so you have that, and then you have the liberal uh, international order on the other hand, and this, it seems like a contradiction, um, but what, what's your reflection on that? Well, it's not always a contradiction. Of course, like everything else, it has a longer history. And um, people often uh, think that um, hawkishness is something of the right wing or something Republican. Uh, Actually, the contrary is true, that it was usually the liberal side of American politics, the Democrats, who were interested in in foreign interventions and and spreading democracy. And uh, it was Kennedy and then Johnson who got and kept the Americans in the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. after all. But I think the history really goes back to the 19th century, at least, uh, and to, to a sort of Protestant missionary spirit of thinking one's own values are universal, and in this case, sort of Anglo-Saxon liberal values, and that the United States in the first place, but Britain also had a kind of mission to spread this uh, across the world in the way that missionaries would spread Christianity. I think that's somewhere in the background of this. Now, we're living in a strange age at the moment where uh, Donald Trump, for as long as he lasts, um, is very, is very, has gone back to the 1930s and to the, ten- the American tendency to isolate itself. So he's not particularly keen on uh, military adventures abroad. Um, uh, on the other hand, is very hawkish uh, rhetorically towards... China in particular, less so in the case of Russia, and is perfectly capable of doing something wild if he feels that his masculinity is challenged or something of that sort. But um, so uh, the military industrial complex, is it uh, in contradiction to the liberal tradition? Not really. I think that the liberal tradition itself has um, uh, periodically um, had a very hawkish face. 
Absolutely. I mean, the, the neocons started off, well, as Trotskyists and then later into the Democrats and then uh, into the Republicans and now sort of back into the Democrats. So that that's certainly historically right. Um, so, yeah, I, and, I mean, the book, your book is not primarily a, a history book. It, it's not so much about Churchill as, as it really is about the, the current age and, in a sense, the unraveling of of this complex and and this order and and it is a somewhat of a of a lament uh for that unraveling um even though you know you recognize the contradictions and and so forth um yeah do, do you want to uh, expand on well it's a lament in the sense that uh, there was a lot of good in it um i grew up with it. And of course, one always laments uh, the demise of something one grew up with. I mean, I I often have to think of the death of Stalin. And uh, there there was no country that suffered so much and and hated Stalin more than Poland. And yet people were crying in the streets of Warsaw because, you know, they grew up with it. It was as though a bit of yourself is dying. I feel that way a little bit about the Anglo-American order. Um, uh, on the other hand, every order has its natural life. Yeah. And uh, I think that the, uh, the, the Pax Americana, the, uh, the, the American order, was absolutely essential to get Europe back on, on, on its feet um, and Japan um, and, uh, and even South Korea. And it allowed these countries to rebuild, it, rebuild their economies, um, get wealthy uh, and so on while um, leaving security up to the United States. But that is becoming less and less um, sustainable. Um, When some of the richest countries in the world are so totally dependent on on the US for their security and US taxpayers are not going to be happy to pay for this forever either, which is something that Donald Trump has exploited in his um, America first rhetoric. Yes, um, and and there's something else you you've um, uh, that runs throughout the book as well, um, as opposed to you know um, reflect if 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 you want to use a different word than lament, sort of reflecting on the end of of this um, system, this this order, uh, which is that uh, you 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 critique the the myths uh, the the myth of the relationship and. Um, I don't know if it's fair for me to say that that you see it as a kind of a phony. No, phony is too hard. Maybe a manufactured sort of um, relationship, uh, not really as primordial as it's made out to be. Um, do you want to? Elaborate? Well, I don't think it's primordial because uh, there was not very much love lost between the Americans and the British for. for, for Many, in many periods of their history. I mean, they went to war at one point. Um, mm. But uh, after the war, uh, it, it, it has a concrete reality as well as a mythical component. It's true that on the level of, of, of intelligence, for example, um, Britain and the United States have, had a, have cooperated very closely. Um, sometimes prime ministers and, and presidents were personally close. Uh, they speak the same language, and so there are affinities, and it, it, it's not an entirely, it's not a, it's 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 not all based on nonsense. On the other hand, from uh, the point of view of Washington and the United States, Britain has never been as important as 
the British like to think. And what is special about it is more special to the British than to the Americans, even though most American presidents feel flattered when they can go and horse riding the Queen in, in, in Windsor and that kind of thing. But that's flim flam. And I think the Americans really since pretty much since the war have encouraged the British to uh, be a leader in Europe and so that they could be the bridge between the, con the European continent and, and the United States. And it's a role that the British have uh, not played terribly well on the whole. Is, is there anybody, it, you know, obviously, you, you know, you're writing, you, you've written your book in a, you know, polemical style is not exactly the, the, the way I want to describe it, but, but you're making an argument, definitely. Um, and is there anybody specifically in mind who you might be sort of arguing against who, who you, you know, um, or, or any body of ideas or something or, or, or misconceptions that particularly you're tackling in the book? Well, I think that, that I, the idea of, of sort of Anglo-Saxon exceptionalism is, it, it, it has not been healthy. I mean, it had its uses, I suppose, during World War II when uh, Winston Churchill became very popular in, in, in America, more popular than Britain ever was. Um, and I think because he played up to that image, that self-image of Americans as sort of uniquely free and uh, and you know, with a national destiny to spread that freedom and all that kind of thing. Freeborn Englishman kind of... Um, that's right. Yeah. yeah. But uh, I think in most periods after the war, um, it's held Britain back. I mean, not long after the war, when European institutions were in their infancy, um, especially the smaller countries in Europe um, and, and Germany, were very keen for Britain to really lead and shape Europe. Uh, the French, of course, were, were rivals, and under General de Gaulle, uh, the French didn't want Britain to join because they wanted it to be a French show. Mm -hmm. But on, but most Europeans wanted the British to be very much part of it, and, and the British missed their chance, um, partly because they saw themselves as victors in World War II and therefore not like other European countries. They're an island, but also because of this nostalgic clinging on to the wartime relationship. Right. Yeah, I'm, now, I myself am um, um, coming from Trinidad and Tobago here and, and coming from, you know, the former colonial world. I mean, America is a former colony too, but... but not know, quite in the same way as Exactly, Trinidad. precisely. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and, you know, you've done uh, a lot of work in Asia and so forth. You, you know that... You, we have a, a, a very sort of mixed and contradictory view sometimes and sort of love-hate relationship, which I think America also does have this kind of love-hate relationship with, with Britain. We share that sort of colonial um, hang-up in a sense. But um, I, you would obviously be aware of the, the critical views of, of Churchill, let's say particularly, but of course, and also the Anglo-American order after World War II. But I mean, I, I, w there's one piece who in today's climate, I, I can't even name the title, but it's uh, Not Counting N-Words by George Orwell. Do you, are you familiar with that essay? I don't know that essay, no. Oh, it's, it's an excellent essay where, where he's criticizing um, Churchill, he's criticizing uh, the Allies 
uh, and, and their, their conceit, and, and the left as well, the hypocrisy of the left in these countries, uh, for their conceit for being, you know, Democrats and liberals, right? They, they have these huge colonial empires. And, uh, uh, and, and so that, you know, so you, you have that sort of criticism there. And then, you know, more recently, people like Shashi Tharoor, who uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure you would have uh, yes. been familiar with his work on, on Churchill sort of reviving and, and, and furthering it, quantifying it. Um, so, so uh, yeah, so, I mean, you're, you're obviously sensitive to these, um, to these uh, critiques as well. Yes. Through your, through your writing. And I mean, even someone like, uh, you know, like Naipaul, who, who I know you've uh, uh, written on and my countrymen, uh, p- people were surprised in, in 1990 when he expressed sympathy for the BJP and the RSS, for yeah. the rising nationalism. Um, and, and in fact, you know, a lot of people are lamenting, you know, this decline of the Anglo-American liberal international order. But, you know, from, from a perspective like mine, I, I, and as you intimated earlier when we were speaking, you know, um, we may not have such a rosy view of that order. How, how do you, uh, you know, what, what's your comment? On? Well, I think, well, first of all, let's, let's begin with Churchill himself. Yeah. Um, Ch- Churchill was, was certainly a, an, an imperialist. He, he, he thought that British power... Uh, which he believed in deeply, uh, dependent on the empire, and he wanted to hang on to it as long as uh, as, as as possible. Uh, he certainly had, even for his time, uh, old-fashioned views on uh, that certain uh, races and peoples were superior to others. At, uh, at the same time, he was very devoted to parliamentary democracy and uh, and and so on. Like all historic figures, I think he was uh, a, a, a bundle of contradictions. And you can criticize him for some of his views and um, admire him for others. Um, Roosevelt was very aware of Churchill's imperialism. And one of their finest documents, and, and I do describe that in a very positive manner in, in my book, was the Atlantic Charter in 1941. And one of the, the, the bones of contention between the two was uh, the notion that all people should have the right to independence. Now, Churchill did not think the Indians or any other colonial subjects should have that right, and, but Roosevelt did. And I think Nehru, uh, who may have been in prison at the time, I can't remember, but uh, very much admired the charter and thought this was the, you know, the, the, the way for... Uh, India to get its independence. And in the end, they fudged it because Roosevelt didn't want to quarrel with Churchill over this. Um, uh, the wartime relationship was too important, or the, the future alliance, uh, and um, allowed Churchill to interpret it that only countries that were occupied by the Nazis or by Germany uh, should regain their right to independence and left the empire sort of uh, vague. Yeah. Uh, so Churchill did have have that side to him. There's 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 absolutely no question. When you talk about um, the love hate in um, in in, in ex British colonies such as Trinidad uh, mm-hmm. or in the United States, I think there's there's a subtle difference. I think in 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 in, in recent um, British colonies and and 
the Caribbean would 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 be an example. Mm-hmm. There is still very much a sense of of colonial oppression and and the need for independence, and that that needed to be fought for. And it's in recent memory. It's fresh. That memory in America is not really fresh at all. I mean, very people give it. Very few people give it any thought. I think in America the. Uh, attitude to Britain was in some ways a little bit more like that of uh, continental Europeans. It was largely a matter of class and that the upper classes uh, on the East Coast admired the sort of the gentlemanly tradition of Britain, the tweed suits, the the country clubs, the golf. But but I'd like to interject here that Mm. certainly in in the former colonies, including Trinidad and Tobago and elsewhere, there's a especially where the country may be badly run, there's a huge nostalgia amongst all classes. Mm. Oh, oh, we wish we were still colonies. We wish, you know, that they... Um, there's tons of people. My Facebook posts today have, have all sorts of comments um, saying that because of um, some criticism of the government. Yes, that, but that wouldn't be true in the United States. Obviously. That's right, exactly. Um, but, uh, but the upper... Cl- and and the, the sort of upper class, um, uh, you know, loving the British accent, the British... Mm. And, and 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 the epitome of of anything cultured is British, you know this yes. sort of thing we definitely share, in a way that maybe um, someone from you know uh, Holland may not share. <laughs> no, no, they they did have that, but I think it's very much a, a it's 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 a fading uh, infatuation. I mean, I still grew up in that atmosphere in the Hague, and where the upper middle classes played cricket and uh, really wore blazers, and so there's an anglophilism even in. Oh yeah, because in, in, and the same was true in Hamburg. It was very true often in coastal cities, uh-huh. and and the yacht club in Hamburg before the war, when and and after the war, when you know Germans would nickname each other Bobby and Mickey and that kind of thing. But Only I think no that French yacht club would think so. Though. <laughs> no, not no. Well, even in France, I mean, the, the, in France and Italy, the aristocracy often had the the steel anglaise, and no, no, it it existed in France too. But that's really a fading memory now. I mean, I don't think that that's very strong any longer. And contemporary Britain, despite Boris Johnson's posturing, um, really doesn't represent that kind of image anymore. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, just, you know, just as a final reflection on this sort of love-hate thing, it's it's, um, probably after the Cold War, let's say in Hollywood, Whereas before, the villains used to have Russian accents, and when if you go farther back, they might have even had fezes on their head. But um, uh, after the Cold War, it's like mainly the villains had British accents. Oh, long, but no, no, uh, during the Cold War too. That goes back a long way. And that, of course, has everything to do with class. Mm -hmm. That uh, uh, Hollywood movies were a popular medium for the masses. And so anything that was associated with the upper class uh, it was an easy target, and and that meant British accents, right. um, which were often imitated by the American sort of East Coast elites to to to, to a certain extent. And so, uh, yes, I mean, the, the, but that goes really goes back to the thirties, right? Right. Maybe maybe longer. Now, one thing I'd like you to comment on too is is. Um, I find it very interesting that both Trump and, let's say, Boris Johnson, uh, perhaps more Farage, but let's say Boris Johnson. I mean, um, 
I mean, they're looking to tear down that order that, that Churchill and, and Roosevelt had, had built up. But, um, but even that, um, their, their partnership in doing so reflects some sort of relationship, doesn't it? Yes, uh, it does. Um, absolutely. And, and what they have in common is, is um, that they're exploiting uh, the resentment against elites and in both countries. Uh, but of course, since both since different countries have different histories, uh, that comes out in slightly different ways. I mean, in America, obviously, um, when when class and elite politics or the politics of resentment manifest themselves, it always involves race uh, because that's because of American history, more so than in Britain. I mean, it's not absent in Britain, and, and as we know, that things like Black Lives Matter and so on immediately have an effect. In Britain as well, but of course the history is somewhat different. Mm-hmm. Um, but in in um, what Farage exploits is the uh, is the anger against what people regard as the elites, and the elites are associated with, uh, as is true in other parts of Europe, with the EU, with European unification, with immigration, with the multiculturalism, and, and so on and so forth, and so. Uh, the popular people often say that Brexit was all about immigration and, and, and sort of hatred of immigrants and so on. It's true up to a point, but I think it's it, it was very largely a question of, of a backlash against the elite, yeah. and because the elite was in favour of Europe and, and, and immigration. Um, the backlash backlash went went against that. Yeah, I mean, and and for coming from the former colonial world, I mean, um, I I see in that movement, you know, very, you know, um, you know, similar, you know, resentments against, you know, neoliberalism and financial capitalism and the exploitation of the working class and the the, the gutting of manufacturing and deindustrialization and uh, you know. Uh, you know, fighting against this this, this inequality, uh, you know, and lack of a, a middle class kind of service oriented, where you have the super rich billionaires and the and the peons at the bottom. Um, it, it's and you know, and Trump, Trump in particular, you know, would come out and say how he would attack the FBI and the CIA and uh, say America has blood on its hands and talk about the senseless wars. Uh, I mean, that really speaks to the kind of anti-colonial sensibility um, uh, that that was critical of this Anglo-American uh, post-World War II order for a, a long time. And I, I found that to be quite striking myself. Um, I don't know, what are your... Well, it, it would speak to the anti, anti-colonial sensibility in former colonies. Yes. I think in America, of course, it has a very different resonance. And uh, one reason it resonated amongst uh, the lesser educated people, especially in the south of the United States, is that it was the poor who had to fight wars abroad. It was the, the, the people who died in Iraq were not, you know, members of the East Coast or West Coast, el- Coast elites who went to universities. They were, they were poor kids on the whole. And so when Trump says enough of this, um, that was popular amongst a lot of his voters who were amongst among the, the less privileged um, uh, citizens of, of the U.S. Um, so 
And again, I think he appealed to this sentiment that it was the elites that had gotten America into these conflicts abroad. And uh, so, you know, people felt they'd had enough of this. I mean, quite rightly. I mean, you can't fault them on that. But it's something, it's one of the many resentments he he exploited. And I think that he, um, the fact that he clicked um, his politics of resentment, that they appealed to so many people who could only dream of the kind of wealth that he had or may not actually have had, but he lived uh, he lived as though he had, um, was that he shared a lot of that that uh, seething resentment. And coming from uh, from Queens in New York, um, from rather louche real estate family uh, and so on, he knew perfectly well, he was vulgar, he was crass, that he that older money in New York looked down their noses at him. He never felt accepted. He felt inferior in many ways. And so his loathing of, 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 of people who he believes consider themselves superior to him clicked with people who um, had similar resentments against the elites in America. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, throughout your book, you you go through um, the history of, of the relationship, and and it's it's something very interesting uh, to reflect on. And you know, I, I'd like you to do so, and, and I'll just point out that I think um, you know, it, to me, before Reagan and Thatcher, I don't think there was anything as powerful as FDR and and Churchill. Reagan and Thatcher seemed to you know really click click it again and then after that um you know clinton and blair i think was you know had and it was from the opposite political end in in many ways where if you look below the surface maybe not but 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 certainly different parties and uh then you had the weird blair bush um relationship uh obama didn't really seem to have somebody to click with in the same way Mm -hmm. but trump kind of does with Farage and, and Johnson. So why don't you take us through these various relationships and, and the ups and downs and, 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 yeah. And it does seem to speak to some, I don't know if you want to use metaphysical, you know, um, connection, but there is some, you know, something that's going through time, that's going past ideologies of left and right, that's, that's, that's gluing. Maybe it's just a language or everyone's reading each other's, work and but i but i'm not sure i would like to hear you. well i think that uh, as if one talks about real personal um rapport of course friendship between political leaders is easy to exaggerate i mean very few of them are real friends but um uh, i think that that macmillan and kennedy had a, a real personal rapport that, that kennedy the younger kennedy admired the kind of savoir-faire and wit of Macmillan and Macmillan admired the youthfulness and dynamism of, of Kennedy. Um, Reagan and Thatcher, whether they rarely liked each other personally, I'm not so sure. I think Margaret Thatcher admired the presidency. She admired the United States and she admired what Reagan stood for ideologically. I think she, she I don't think she rated him very highly intellectually and, and got more pleasure out of arguing with Gorbachev than she did uh, with Reagan telling showbiz anecdotes, that was not her her thing really. But they did click ideolo- ideologically, and again, the, the wartime nostalgia had a lot to do with it. Neither of them took uh, any direct part in World War II. 
but both of them had fantasies about Britain and America sort of standing up for liberty against uh, tyranny, which in their time was the Soviet was represented by the Soviet Union. So, um, and and also they felt that the that, that relatively speaking, uh, their countries were in decline; that they were no longer the great as great as they had been, and tried to revive that in in this joint project to fight the tyranny of the Soviet Union. So that was Reagan and Thatcher. Blair uh, and and Clinton is interesting because in many ways they were the heirs of of Thatcherism, and uh, when. Um, uh, Blair's spokesman or, or advisor uh, famously said, um, uh, I think it was Mandelson actually, who said, we're, we're intensely relaxed about getting filthy rich. I mean, that was not the language of a socialist normally. That's right. But they, so Blair, Blair and Clinton understood one another in, in this sort of third way, weak yeah. social democratic idea. But Blair and Bush, I think, is the more interesting relationship. And Blair has often been called the most American prime minister after the war. And in many ways he was, not only because of this notion of being intensely relaxed with getting filthy rich, which was a sort of an American side to him, but he was also very religious and, and had a sort of missionary spirit again, which is, and, and wore his religion on his sleeve, which is much more American or more common in America yeah. than it is in Britain. And I think like Bush, he saw the war against Saddam Hussein and the invasion of Iraq almost in messianic terms. And I don't think he did it cynically, joined the Americans in this invasion cynically because you know, he was a lapdog or because he wanted a place at the high table and so on. There was all that. But I think he really did believe in it. And again, um, in his memoirs, you can see that he was reading... Uh, Chamberlain's um, uh, diaries uh, on the eve of the war and told, told himself that he was not going to make the same blunder and uh, was very sort of Churchillian in his pretensions, as, as Margaret Thatcher was. And, yeah. and Reagan kept on calling, comparing Thatcher to Churchill and, and, and so on. Yeah. You know, I, I have a, a, a theory, a historical theory, that America is almost like an alternate universe of, of Britain uh, with the continuation of the Puritan revolutions, like Cromwell, mm -hmm. and then discontinued. So it's the sort of Calvinist Republic, uh, you know, exp fully expressed as opposed to, you know, bringing back the king. And exactly. So, yeah. yeah, no, even more so than Britain. And, and yeah. they carried on that tradition, the Cromwell Cromwellian tradition, whereas the Britain British in some ways abandoned it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And... and from what you're describing there, it, it, I, it came to my mind because it's kind of like Blair, in a sense, kind of took that, you know, although he was Catholic, but it's this kind of Protestant messianism. Well, he wasn't Catholic at the time. He, he was <laughs> very high Anglican. Um, he be, I think he became a Catholic partly because his wife was. Yeah. Um, but uh, but even so, I think he represented very much that that sort of evangelical Protestant tr yeah. tradition more than a, a Catholic one. But as we can see today in the United States, the the, the right wing of of, the, of 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 Catholicism is almost indistinguishable now from the evangelical yeah. uh, Protestants, and they have very similar political views. 
Now, um, another thing I'd like you to maybe elaborate on is uh, your, I mean, you, you talk about the, the Churchill complex and, uh, you know, Churchill versus Chamberlain and this dichotomy, but you, um, you, you know, I, you do make an argument in the book that, you know, Chamberlain has been treated unfairly and, and he's been, you know, painted, uh, you, know, uh, you know, unfairly with, with this brush. I, I think it's important to elaborate because it, it is such a powerful image. It, it is brought up every time where you're just a Chamberlain and a Pisa. Um, can you elaborate? Well, I think in retrospect, you could say, certainly in 1940, uh, that Churchill was proved right and Chamberlain was proved wrong. You couldn't make a deal with Hitler and, and trust his word. I mean, and Churchill was quite right uh, to see that uh, clearly when others uh, preferred not to see it. But I think Chamberlain was in a difficult position. Britain wasn't really ready yet to fight a war. Um, uh, public opinion may not have been quite ready either, which is not to say that he was right, but uh, there were extenuating circumstances. You could at least understand why he did what he did. And to, to only to dismiss it as cowardice uh, and a personal failing is, is, is not historically, I think, fair. But that's not to say that, you know, I'd be an ardent defender of Chamberlain against Churchill. I think right. uh, what the, Churchill's greatness was that in 1940, you, what you didn't want is the kind of politician that you normally do want in peacetime, who is flexible, who will try and find uh, a diplomatic way out, who will try and compromise and so on. Normally, that's the kind of leadership that you need. But mm -hmm. in 1940, May 1940, you need a bloody-minded, romantic, uh, slightly bloodthirsty uh, leader who understood that it, it, they had to do or die. Right. And right. in normal circumstances, you don't want do-or-die leaders. Yeah. Which is why that was Churchill's fate after the war. And yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, you know, um, th throughout the book, I, I notice... Um, uh, both subtly and, and sometimes just explicitly, um, you uh, you know, as, as, as you criticize the, the kind of, uh, how should I say, it, the, the, the taken for granted, the, the assumed uh, affinity of, of this special relationship between the U.S. and U.K. And uh, I, I suppose, especially, you know, since most listeners uh, to NBN will be American, the majority, so they'll know about you know, U.S.-Mexico or U.S.-Japan or U.S.-China or... Uh, um, but let's say from the U.K. side, um, you know, the, um, what are some of the other, you know, relationships that, that you know, that are important to the U.K. And, and how does it compare? Like, for instance, I'm thinking, I mean, you mentioned Russia, Russia, um, and I, there might be some kind of relationship there. I know a lot of oligarchs like to go to London and buy real estate. And, but, uh, and uh, well, the India-UK relationship is very interesting, I, I find. Uh, and I, I'm not sure if Canada or Australia um, uh, would come up there. Although, you know, someone like Mark Carney, head of the Bank of England, I, I found that interesting. But yeah, but are there other relationships that the UK has with other countries that are also very important, but perhaps, um, you know, not under, or overshadowed by the mythology of the uh, US-UK relationship? 
Well, I think in the case of the US, um, you mentioned Obama earlier, and uh, mm -hmm. Obama has no sentimental attachments to Europe or, or Britain. That's right. And, and I think he's also following um, other US presidents in recent times who are shifting their attention from Europe to uh, Asia, uh, where... Uh, because of the rise of China, because of the enormous economic importance of Asia and so on. It makes sense. Yeah. From, from the British point of view, again, class is an, is an element that's often lacking in discussion about these yeah. things. Just as it's true that the American upper class, the old East Coast elite, was, was sometimes Anglophiliac because they sent person a sense of style and... and, and they felt culture. comfortable in culture. They felt comfortable in gentlemen's clubs and that kind of thing. Well, that elite is gone. But you see the same class element in, in Britain's relations with other countries. For example, I think that the relation with, with France is very important. Mm -hmm. And modern, or let's say British nationalism since the 18th century has often been, uh, even though there were uh, strong alliances with France, but were often Britain defined itself against France. And, I, and the sort of the John Bull image of, and the yeoman of Britain and so on, the, 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 they were uh, reacting against the upper classes of their day. And the upper classes of their day spoke French and yeah. drank fine wines and were seen by the, the sort of lower classes, the John Bull class, as foppish. And like so, the old Normans kind of. That's right. And so, so, so France played that, that role and, and, and Napoleonic times, of course, they were the enemy and at other times they, they weren't. But I think that during World War II and when you come to Churchill and Roosevelt and so on, I find fascinating the role that de Gaulle played, who uh, Roosevelt couldn't stand him and saw him as a sort of pretentious... Uh, the guy was much too big for his boots because after what did he represent? I mean, a small section of a defeated country. Uh, Churchill, like all upper-class Englishmen who liked, prided himself on speaking bad French, was a bit of a Francophile, and he understood the grandeur of, of de Gaulle's pretensions. Um, and so Britain's relation with France have never been... Um, uh, as one-sided as of people often think. Yeah. And uh, so that's an interesting one. Britain's relations with Germany are also interesting because I, I believe that in the first decades after the war, until about the, 18, the 1990s, possibly, as long as that, I think the British were less viscerally anti-German than, than people who'd been under German occupation. So the Dutch were more anti-German, the Poles, of course, and, and often the French. The British, only the British could have had sitcoms on television which uh, described World War II as a sort of comedy yeah. and, and Nazis as comic characters. I mean, no Pole would have seen them as comic characters. That started to change in the 90s, on, uh, uh, maybe earlier, actually. It was under Margaret Thatcher that they really began to change. And, and the British began to realize how far they declined economically and how far 
Germany had had um, uh, gone ahead and and were much richer and more advanced in many ways. And the tone of the of the right wing tabloids, the Murdoch press at the time, was was a sort of peevishness of this is unfair. We won the war. Well, you know why are these people suddenly doing so much better than us? And so the the the, the anti German, the sort of anti German hooligan spirit, really came quite late. Is is it's mm-hmm. a recent phenomenon. And some of the resentment against the EU in Britain amongst Brexiteers is also this resentment of Germany. Um, you know, that, uh, as yeah. one of Margaret Thatcher's minister famously said, you know, the EU is a German racket. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the way it has been seen. Um, as far as India is concerned, um, uh, the British often like to take it for granted that the Commonwealth nations will somehow treat... Um, um, Britain outside the EU with a certain sort of friendly deference. And I think uh, that's a complete delusion. Um, I don't think there's any great fondness for the UK and India today. Um, And I think that's one of the many delusions of Brexit. Although it does seem that the, the British, there's at least a certain section of the British elite really, you know, um, uh, are, are close to the Indian elite as well, and then the the huge investments um, from you know the you know the the Mittals and the um, you know Reliance and, and these people. I, I I just find it interesting, and you know, um, for uh, uh, e- even among the the nobles, you know, whatever's left of the nobility in in Britain um, seem to click with the. Uh, you know, the old princely families. Of- yes, but I think that's all very marginal. And, and as, yeah. you, as you know yourself, I mean, the, the, the sons and daughters of the Indian elite today are more likely to go and study at Harvard and Yale than they are at Oxford or Cambridge. And mm-hmm. I don't think that in Modi's circles there is any great Anglophilia. And, no. uh, and, and nor is there very much admiration for Modi in, in Britain today. Mm-hmm. So I think, uh, the, yes, you have sort of nostalgic um, Indians who read P.G. Woodhouse and, and sort of uh, crusty old Englishmen who sort of love and you have India, these celebrity weddings among the super rich and these types of things too you know among the british and, and indian I, I just find that there's a little bit of that but i think yeah. that's all very marginal mm-hmm. but so in in going toward the, the conclusion of, of, of the book and, and you know concluding of the interview as well but um, the U.S.-U.K. relationship, as I said, you know, it, it's sort of a, a reflection on, on the end of, of the order. But is, is that the same thing as the end of the relationship? Because it is interesting that, that it is, you know, a sort of joint Anglo-American pro- project to dismantle the Anglo-American post-World War II order, in, in a sense. Um, what, what do you well it's it, in the end it's all that, a yeah. matter of of interests isn't it yeah. and and I doubt if many presidents or prime ministers will be completely driven by sentimental uh, uh, motives and from the American point of view when it comes to national int- interest in trade and and, and other matters um, the EU will matter much more than a, a Britain outside the EU 
and uh, British interests, even Boris Johnson under Boris Johnson, don't necessarily align with those of the United States either. If if Trump gets another four years, and uh, for example, would want to withdraw from NATO, I cannot imagine in, uh, even a government under Boris Johnson uh, applauding such a move. And so, uh, it, it, interests will keep the two two sides apart in many respects. What they have in common is that they now, uh, both countries have leaders who exploited a similar wave of anti-elite resentment. But that's not very much. And uh, so uh, it it seems to me, yes, there will be relations, there'll be a lot of trade, a lot of business, possibly intelligence sharing and so on. But I very much doubt that in the next 20, 30 years, Britain outside the EU will mean a great deal to those who are in power in Washington. Mm-hmm. Well, what message would you like to leave your readers with um, after you know, completing your book? What, what well, I think the message, my, my message would be, if there is a message, I mean, it's always difficult to condense a book and a message, mm-hmm. but it would be that uh, the, the thing I admire most about what these two countries achieved, apart from defeating Hitler with the help of the Soviet Union, um, it, it was the Atlantic Charter. And I think the principles of the Atlantic Charter are still admirable and and still um, uh, useful. And so the, the spirit of international cooperation, um, freedom, um, liberal trade, uh, all that, um, I think is still important. And I think what one, what one can only hope that even though the Anglo-American order, as it was set up after the war, um, may not survive in its present form forever, it won't. But you would hope that some of the principles underlying it um, will have a, have a longer life. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to thank you so much for this interview. Thank you. It's been informative and enjoyable. So once again, the book is The Churchill Complex, The Curse of Being Special, From Winston and FDR to Trump and Brexit. And we've been speaking to the author, Ian Baruma. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you also to our listeners. Make sure you sign up for our notifications so you don't miss any new interviews on this channel in the future. I look forward to seeing you on the next episode.